0: So I met the GM in the convention center. He said, hey, you need to go join the Rotary Club. It happened to be in the hotel right there. So I said, sure. What I didn't realize was every mover and shaker in the city of Santa Clara, where the park was, was in that club. I didn't know that. You got the chief of police, fire, city officials, you got all kinds of people. Joining that enabled me to quickly identify who are the movers and shakers. And if I needed something for the park, that, that was huge.
1: Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast,
2: where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry.
1: I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and
2: helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for The
1: Attraction Pros Podcast.
2: Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey,
1: Matt, I'm doing really well. How are you?
2: (laughs) Well, I am fantastic, and I have a question for you. All right. I know you've been part of some openings of parks. Have you ever been part of a acquisition or transition of ownership from parks that you've worked at? Yes. Which one was that? Uh,
1: when I worked for Universal, I was there when Comcast took over.
2: Ah, okay. How think was that, that? How was that? <laughs> um,
1: it, it, in my little circle of the universe, no pun intended, it, it, it was It was fine. I, I think that there was... Um, I I think there was a lot of very like strong immediate, like they wanted to make a really good first impression. I remember uh, like stock being offered to all full-time employees if they like met certain like tenure or or things like that. Um, And then I think there was like a little bit of guest confusion. I remember uh, there was a guest standing in line at guest service standing at the window at guest services who was very disgruntled with, with whatever circumstance they were in and threatening to cancel their Comcast account. And we're like, that's that that, i don't care like okay (laughs) but uh but
2: but yeah i think i think overall all right what about you um well i was there for that as well uh but i don't remember it having that big of a um impact you know right especially when you get that large of an organization and a corporation you know i think the the impact gets less and less and less when you get kind of down into the the lower levels,
1: if you will. And it was like the parent company buying the parent company of the parent company. At least it felt like that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So many layers of uh,
2: capitalism, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason I bring that up uh, is because today's guest, Bill Lentz, has been through a number of those and could probably write a book about the ins and outs and the do's and don'ts when it comes to um, act acquiring Prada um, parks and, and the whole process. Not that he acquired them himself, but he was part of that um, under under many different organizations. Um, he's now the GM of Adventureland in Iowa, and uh, we get to talk to him about all kinds of different stuff today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we do. And, and it's cool the the park acquisition
1: thing, he's been on both sides of it within many organizations, the, uh, the company that was acquiring and the company that was being acquired. So it was cool to hear uh, just his lens of being part of that process. Uh, we, we get to hear so many amazing uh, leadership lessons from him, it talks about believing in the team and building trust and building relationships, it talks about the importance of building a professional network and, and networking, uh, kind of really how it, how it ripples out. It should start out locally and then with, you know, with your suppliers, with your partners, with you know with all that throughout the industry uh and, and really uh you know he, he talks about uh that that he wouldn't ask anyone to do something that he wouldn't do himself and he reiterates that point uh, in and with various different examples throughout throughout the interview that uh, that really uh that really kind of
2: justifies that message yeah bill is really somebody that if i were to look for someone that I was going to work for in the industry, it would probably be someone like Bill, right? Because he is very much of a walk the talk and respecting the team and and those kind of things. And I really appreciated what he said about tough conversations, the conversations that we tend to shy away from a little bit. Um, And his approach is, hey, I'm helping someone, right? I'm helping them be a better version of themselves. And quite frankly, it's a disservice if I don't do this. Um, And that's such a different lens to kind of look through, Um, but it was really great to hear. Right, and much better than it's like it's checking the box. This employee was late three times in a row, so we need to
1: discipline them. Here's the piece of paper, sign it. Right, it's very, I don't know, it's cold, it's transactional, yeah. right? Versus versus, I care about you. So it's, uh, I, it's amazing just to to hear his
2: guidance. A uh, lot of lot of great advice that uh, that came out of this interview. Absolutely. So we could go on and on, right? But we're not going to. We're going to let you hear directly from Bill in this great interview. Yep, it'll be an adventure. Hey Bill, welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great, Matt. Glad to be here. Absolutely. We're so excited for your for the conversation.
0: Can you first talk to us a little bit about your history in the industry? Sure. I've been in hospitality pretty much my whole life. My father was hired by Jack Kent Cook, who was the who built the forum in LA with Lakers and Kings played. And when I was 15, uh, he got the merchandise. I started selling merchandise there working with a couple of my sisters did that for numbers of years did uh, he also had concert tour merchandising did Harlem Globetrotters did a lot of stuff like that I I, I was involved with that and got through got through college about the time I got out of college he got out of the business so I continued on with that for several years and in the late 80s in 1989 I went to work at Knott's Berry Farm in retail started there as a retail operations manager did that for in about three years, I was promoted to be the retail operations manager for all of the stores throughout the whole property. And Knott's has got a lot, 35 or so at the time. I was there in late the late 90s when Cedar Fair bought Knott's. And then shortly after that acquisition happened, I had the chance to become the director of merchandise over retail games, warehouse, ghost town operations, quite a few things. And it was during that time with Cedar Fair where I got my first opportunity to become a general manager. In 2005, I was made the general manager of the water park out in Palm Springs, Soak City. I was there for a couple of years. And then then they had the Paramount acquisition. And and then I was sent up to uh, Great America in Northern California to be the general manager of the theme park. And it was also had an expanding water park. So that was a, a new experience for me, taking over running an operation that big. I also had oversight of Gilroy Gardens, which was a, a, a children's theme in an horticultural park down the road in Gilroy. That uh, did that for a few years. Um, my wife was a big fan of Northern California. She would have been happy to go back to Palm Springs. So I had that opportunity. So we ended up going back to Palm Springs and I was there for a few more years. And then I got recruited by Palace Entertainment to come in and, and, and be their vice president of water parks. And I got hired in to oversee all, at the time I believe we had eight water parks all over the country um and then in 2018 we acquired sydney australia the it was the originally wet and wild so i did that for um i was there for that acquisition that was very interesting and then in, at the end of 2019 2020 there was a change in our senior leadership within palace there were new owners with Parkes rio nitos and my new boss, early in 2020, decided I didn't have enough to do, so he gave me a couple of wa- uh, animal parks to oversee, in addition to all nine of the water parks we had by that time. And then toward the end of 2020, due to COVID, there were some restructuring changes, and I ended up being the uh, general manager back in, at, in uh, Miami at our animal park there at Miami Seaquarium. I did that. I was there not very long, and they informed me that they were selling the park. So, uh, but at the same time, I knew there were acquisitions going on. And so as we sold Miami, they had acquired here at Adventureland. And so that's how I ended up here at Adventureland in in January of this year is when I took the role and actually got here full-time in early March.
1: That's so fascinating. Thank you for for kind of really walking us through the uh, the career path there uh, from from the beginning till today. One of the things that really stuck out is the amount of acquisitions that you have been a part of, whether on the end of the business that was acquiring or on the business that was being acquired. Can you talk a little bit about what those transitions were like? Because to the, you know, for the, for the consumer, a lot of the brand really remains the same, but of course there are some obvious changes, but, you know, as far as internally and kind of going through that process, largely, which was out of your control, very much external factors to, to your role, your
0: career, uh, as far as what it was like going through those acquisitions. Yeah, Josh, it was, uh, it was interesting because I was on, I've been on both sides, right? And You know, being at Knott's when Cedar Fair took over, a family-owned business. Although I would say at Knott's at the time was they had hired more professionals come in and manage the park. It wasn't the actual family by this time. It was second generation, even third generation getting involved, managing the company. So it did have a little more structure. When we took over Sydney, Australia, that was a park that had been built by Village Roadshow, a lot of corporate structure there. And then coming here to Adventureland... That was a situation where it was really truly family owned and family operated. So you have a whole different level of how the park was run. When it's family owned, it's typically it's different than a corporate structure. You know, corporate structures often have a lot more rules and guidelines and things that they already have in place. They, they have to have that because they have so many properties, they got to be consistent about it. Uh, but what was consistent about all these things, and this included when I was at Miami and that park was being sold. It's just how the team, how the staff reacts to everything, because you know, they're all operationally, pretty much with any acquisition, whether you're buying or selling the team that's in place, they need that team. You know, everyone's worried they're gonna lose their job, right? That's not the case. The most Typically the most critical position that there might be some turnover will be at the top you know, for the GM position or a couple of key positions. But for the most part, just convincing the staff that you know, you're fine, everything's okay. And as long as you continue to do your work and do a good job, everything's going to be good. So that's probably the interesting thing in the dynamic with all these acquisitions and, and or sales is that that element didn't seem to change no matter which which property it was with. Just just dealing with you know that anxiety level the staff has because it's change right it's something new. And everyone handles that a little bit differently. Uh, but I've been fortunate, you know, with with the transitions, the teams got through it, and uh, and we're doing they're doing well.
2: So, Bill, you mentioned uh, sort of the difference between a family business and more of a corporate structure business, and you mentioned that there's more cor- there's more structure right within a corporate um, business, more more probably hierarchy. Um, can you talk about the difference that you saw in family-run businesses and how maybe some of those things with a little less structure might have been positive, or maybe it was even, even more negative? But just kind of those differences between family and, and
0: corporate. Yeah, it's pros and cons both ways, and. And, you know, and I can't speak to every family business because I'm sure there's a lot of family businesses like I was at Knott's. We had a we had a structure. We had a purchasing system in place. We had, you know, very defined reporting systems in place. You know, the other families like here at Adventureland, we got here. Park was run very well. The the family managed it well, uh, but they didn't have a specific, you know, uh, a, a, a purchasing structure that had to go through a corporate you know, a corporate software system and and here because we're even though we're just part of a, a collection of parks under palace, we have a corporate office, we have to report to. So you know that dynamic changes so you know in every situation can be a little bit different and. Some would argue, you know, in, you know, in, a, in, in some family businesses, if you need something you go to the owner He'll just say, get it sure you're done one question you get it done in five seconds. Well, it doesn't always work efficiently on a corporate structure. You know, there's a lot more levels of approval, and you know, there are pros and cons both ways. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, as long as the you know, the facility is able to you know operate efficiently and get what they need to get done, it can work well both ways.
1: And then, what about the the regional differences as well? You you talked about Southern California, Northern California, Sydney, Australia, and Iowa. Can, can you talk a little bit about kind of what you've seen as far as, is there a difference in operations or is it largely the same? And, and I guess this would apply both to family-owned and operated, and, and to corporate as far as kind of the, the lens of the question here in terms of uh, in
0: terms of perhaps regional differences. Yeah, there's there are clearly regional differences. You know, here in the U.S., there's big state-to-state state differences. The labor laws in California are quite different than the labor laws here in Iowa or Florida. Every state's different. Those are things that you clearly... Have to take in mind when we took over Australia, completely different structure there. Every employee is on a contract. The federal government there is involved with how much people get paid. There's all kinds of things that are, you know, nuances that are different. Mm -hmm. From an operational standpoint, that doesn't change too much because, you know, you still need to run a safe park. You still have safety training, you know, making sure everyone's following all the guidelines that are set in place. Those kinds of things don't change. I also can tell you even Northern California to Southern California, you know, I'm from Southern California. That's, I I lived there up until last year, my whole life. Even going to Northern California, there's quite a bit of difference between, you know, culture in Northern California and Southern California. If you're from California, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, And and even even in Miami, you know, that was an experience that was quite different. So uh, there are, you know, cultural differences state to state and region to region, you know, here in the Midwest, very, very good, good, good people here. A lot of, you know, great customers here. You have, you know, it's a lot more rural in general. So that's just a, a different, a different element. One of the things I think it is a little, little unique here that I found really more on the theme park side, less on the water park side was the interaction on, on from the social media and your, and your groups. You know, you've got, you know, the ACEs, your American Coaster Enthusiasts, you have the Iowa Associations and, and those those can tend to be a lot more active on the theme park side compared to the water park side because of your roller coasters and and things like that. And, you know, they're more engaged, different regions are engaged differently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that just goes to the, you know, the, the area, you know, and I think the expectations in some parts of the country are much higher than others. You know, you get to the bigger city parks and, you know, it's just, it's just a different feel. Some people may be a little more on edge just because they're, you know, that's just how it is in that area. And in other areas, it's a little more relaxed. So those are the different differences that you'll find in different parts of the our country and even worldwide.
2: I wonder too, Bill, do you find that Maybe you're seeing this in in Iowa that there's maybe even more of a sense of ownership for the guests coming in because maybe it's the only thing in the area or it's where they grew up and, you know, cities tend to be a little bit more transient. So they may not see Miami Seaquarium as the place that they grew up and they're experiencing these things where as Adventureland, you know, maybe they've been coming there for years and, you know, bringing multiple generations. So do you see all that
0: kind of difference too, depending on where you are? I think every area, especially if you have a park that's been around a long time, you are gonna have your really your advocates, those that have been there that's family have come traditionally. I think what you may find to your point in an area where there's not as many things to do, obviously here in Iowa, it's not like Southern California where you've got five theme parks within a couple hour drive, right? Here, you know, you know, there's only a handful. And I do think people, more people take a bigger ownership of it. And are vocal about it and it, which is a good thing i mean like i said every park has them and you're great you love those those are the people that you really want to have at your parks you know they're your advocates they're the ones that are they enjoy it they they, they get really excited about anything you do they let you know when they don't they aren't happy about something which is okay you know that's part of that's part of what what you want you want you want to you want to hear those comments and and i i think part of it does have to do with all the various things that are available in that region or in that in that area which which makes a difference in the in the level of engagement is probably the better yeah. way to put it Yeah. Uh,
1: So, Bill, can you talk a little bit about uh, how the last, I I guess, uh, how 2022 has been kind of coming into Adventureland in in January and as far as uh, what your priorities have been and and overall kind of how the last, I would say, eight or so months uh, have been in Iowa?
0: Yeah, it was, you know, when we took over the park, I was here. The actual day we take over was late December. I think it was the 20th or 21st. I was here for that, that time, you know, met all the staff and everything. But I was also in the middle of finishing up what had to be done in Miami to finish the sale transaction. And there was a lot of work that had to be done down there. So for the first couple of months, I was really in and out. And I really didn't get here full time until March. And that's a critical time because you've got a new team. They're transitioning to a new company. A lot of different things. So one of the first things, you know, really when I was here full time was really understand, get a feel for how the team's doing, get a basic understanding. We had, and there was a lot going on. Like I said, we had nine new rides going in, which is a lot for any park, let alone park in the middle of a sale and a transaction. And you've got new systems in place, a lot of changes in that respect. Uh, I was very fortunate. The team here is very strong, very good, and I was pleased with with you know the level of of, of of the staff here and and how we were able to how they were able to pull together. Get everything done while transitioning to, to this new structure and, you know, for the first time. And it's not easy. You know, if you've ever been to a place where you've gotten, you have to learn a bunch of stuff brand new, well, you kind of wonder, well, is it really necessary? Well, unfortunately it is, you know, and, and even though they might not understand fully why we're doing it, eventually everyone, you know, it's important for everyone to get on board and make sure that we're all, we're all moving together and working together. And And we were able to pull it off. We had we had the other challenge here this year in, uh, at Adventureland, we had a very late winter. So we we had in a lot of the rides, which is new to me, I've never lived in a cold weather climate. <laughs> we couldn't even, we opened our first opening weekend because it had been so cold. We hadn't even run a couple of our wooden coasters at all because it was too cold. You know, so it's things like that that I hadn't dealt with before the team here had and just learning to adapt with those. But, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of things that we want to make sure, you know, as a company, we do all the safety requirements, you know, all the, all the things that we do structurally and really operationally to make, to to be consistent with our own company. Uh, But, but we were able to be successful at it here this summer. Awesome.
2: Um, I want to go a little bit deeper into that learning curve of coming in as a a person in an executive role at an organization, right? And obviously, you you mentioned getting to know the team, which is incredibly important, getting to know the culture, uh, I'm sure of the organization, but you've also got your ideas and your experience. So how do you balance kind of understanding what the culture is, but also saying, well, this is what Bill has experienced, and I know this is going to work. So, um, you know, kind of working that into the learning curve as well.
0: Yeah, one of the things that's really important, and I've found successful, you know, leading a number of teams over the years is, you know, you, you've got to show that you believe in the team, and then they'll have a chance to believe in you. I've, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in listening, not overreacting. I'm always I'm a very calm. You'll probably, if you know a lot of people, they probably never see me upset about something. You know, I, I'm, I, I think it's really important that you show everyone respect and and that starts really from the line employees we have 14 year olds here you know all the way up to we have a lot of seniors that uh, that work here as well and it really makes it, it's a, it's a different blend here it's really it's very it's very interesting it's very it's a very good situation to be in with a lot of older a lot of younger you know and you wouldn't think they'd work that well together but they really do and and just letting them all know that you know you're you know being very personable you know engaging with them Don't, you know, if you see them, try to call them by their name, just building, building a good team that way and let them know that you're not just this figurehead that they just hear about. And that really helps when I want to get my message across, you know, and we're not going to agree on everything and that's okay, but also explaining them why, you know, not just we're going to do this, this way it's going to be, we talk it through. And I tell you, there are many times we made some changes here and there were some, you know, there were some questions, why we are doing this? But once we talked it through, the team understood it made sense to them. And it it gives a better buy and it gives a better feel that okay we are doing the right thing. It's not just because someone wants to do it, you know. And that's that's the way I've operated, and it's that's been very successful for me. Is you know making sure the team is fully communicated with, you know, the they understand what is going on, and they have the chance to ask questions. You know, a lot of times are good questions. There are times they'll come up with something you know we didn't think about that. We can we can make an adjustment, and and that's really helped. You know, getting the team on board and us and us all working together. Mm.
1: I imagine it, it could be a challenge to be able to, uh, you talk about showing your team that you believe in them and being able to do it really at scale. I would say day in, day out, every member of the team, regardless of what line of leadership and even down to the, the frontline employees. Uh, and I know you shared a, a couple examples there, but I wonder if you can if you can expand on that too as far as uh, just some ways that, that leaders are regularly able to show their team that they believe in them in the interest of getting the team to believe back in them as well.
0: A lot of that comes with, you know, everyone, they all have their responsibilities. They they always have things that they have to do. In some cases, you know, you want to challenge them. You want to give them tasks. You want to give them areas of things they have to get done. And and you know what you want, to, you know, you know how you would do it, but you want to give them, it's just show you, show them how they would do it. They can come back to you and ask questions, but just giving them the opportunity to, to demonstrate what they can do. And then whether they succeed or not, it's showing trust in them because that's a big thing. You know, if, if you, can show that you trust your staff give them a chance to prove what they cannot can do then okay if there's if there's a better way to do it we work on that we fix it for the next time um but i think that's that's something i mean we, we did a lot of things here at the park uh we you know we made a lot of uh operational changes from the ride training maintenance training tracking we we brought in a new lifeguard certification company and there were a lot of things that were done that were consistent with how Palace operates, but not how the park had her operated. And that'd be, that'd be the same for any company that would have bought the park to come in and do. And a lot of it was brand new, you know? And so as you explain it to them, you feed it to them, let them work with it. And then they realize, wow, this is, this is good. And, and sometimes they were able to add their own comments to it and we, and we made improvements. So, and again, it goes back to giving them a chance showing that you trust them. And that really goes a long way to, you know keeping them motivated you know, to continue to do a good job.
2: Bill, one of the questions I wanted to ask, uh, based on your breadth of leadership experience, is how you define leadership. And I think you kind of started to answer that a little bit when I'm, I'm hearing words like trust and respect and listening. Um, but what are some other ways that you might um, describe how you've developed your leadership
0: style over the years? I, one of the first things, and this is very common, you know, you gotta, it starts with walking the walk. You can't just, you know, say say something and not kind of follow it up. I'm a big believer of being out in the park, helping, you know, setting an example. There's no job that I won't ask somebody to do that I wouldn't do it myself. I remember I was in Miami and they had a food delivery come in and uh, there was one supervisor unloaded. I went over to help him unload the boxes. He looked at me, he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm helping you. And he goes, well, you shouldn't do that. I go, yes, it is. It's part of my job. You know, that picking up trash, it's, it's, it's those things. And and it is noticed as every leader knows, every time you get promoted up the chain, everybody's watching you on you're subordinate. So everything you do, eyes are all on you. So it's it's really having that constant setting of the example. Like I also said, you have to listen. You know, it's easy to come in and just set your own, dictate what you're doing, but you need to understand what's going on first to be a, probably make a better, more effective opportunity to make change or not make change. And that's, that's something that's also critical. I think a big thing that's really worked well for me is also, I believe one of the big parts of my job is motivating my entire staff, not just my direct reports, but my entire staff. And one of the things that's been extremely helpful for me, there's a lot of good leaders that do this, is you try to call everybody by name. You know, We wear name badges. I got really good at reading a name badge from about 20 or 30 feet away. So when you walk up, you can acknowledge who that person is. And that means so much to them, especially the line employees. And an exa- I never realized. You know, when I first started at Knotts over 30 years ago, uh, I didn't even realize I did it. I, I it was a it was a it was an store guy that worked for me, and I had said called him by name. And the next time I came in, I called him by name again. And it was several months later, he told me how much that meant to him, just acknowledging him by name. So that's that's a simple thing that keeps the team motivated, and also it's very important to have open communication. You know, you need to know that. But while a lot of people might be intimidated to share comments with you because they may get in trouble you know it's you know i try to set them as easy as much at ease as you can because it is amazing the good suggestions you'll hear from the people that are out in the trenches right the other ones that are doing something hey if we did it this way it might be a little bit better you know not every idea is great but sometimes they come up with some some very good ones so those are the things that i've i've worked well for me from a leadership standpoint awesome
1: I love what you say about, uh, remembering names and using names. Uh, you know, I, I look at things from, from the guest experience, or I talk a lot about guest experience and I say using the guest's name kind of brings it to a, another level of luxury, like a Ritz-Carlton standard, a four season standard. Uh, and then Matt and I talk a lot about the intersection of guest and employee experience. So that translates directly to kind of creating almost like a luxury employee experience of my boss remembers my name. So here's, I guess, probably a very practical question here is, is that a lot of people struggle with remembering names. It could, uh, you know have just introduced themselves, the other person says their names and it's just it in one ear and out the other. And not not for you know any any bad intention, but wondering actually if you have any specific tips or tricks on how to remember someone's name when you meet them, particularly if they're not wearing a name tag.
0: <laughs> a lot of times I'll try to call if they tell me they I'll call their name right back to them. So I have to say it. It it helps just one little time. And there have been times I've someone said their name and 30 seconds later I've forgotten it. Right. Yeah. Because you meet so many people. A lot of times if I try to associate their name with somebody I know, that helps me if it's if it's a, you know their name's Lucy, I know another Lucy, I'll tie them together. Those, those things help me or if there's some way I can connect if I can connect the name, you have automatic lights here, sorry. And uh, so those are little things I do. I mean it, the name badges I every time I walk up, I normally wear a name badge. we're up close today, so I' don't have mine on. And I, I encourage that. And the first thing I'll do is I'll tap my name badge just without even saying anything. And hopefully they'll have it on. They'll have it in their pocket or something. It's it's just a, a way to make sure they're wearing it because I want the guests to be able to call them by name. That's why we wear the name badges, right? And uh, so uh, those are the things that, that have helped me, you know. And I'll be the first to admit I don't remember everyone's name all the time. But the more you go out there, the more you say it. It's it's a it's a habit you gotta you gotta really work on to be able to, you know, to do. You have to really make an effort to do it. Yeah.
2: And that the name is something that's universal to everybody, right? I mean, everybody you know wants to hear their own name, but I would also imagine that at various levels in the organization, your direct reports versus your frontline team member, that there's ways that you communicate with them or things that you might do a little bit differently um, to kind of find their intrinsic motivation. So what are some of those tactics maybe that you use, or maybe not even things you you think about, but you just notice that you're doing to interact with different levels, maybe a little differently because
0: they just have different priorities or just different people. And that goes to the listening component. You know, you, everybody you're dealing with, especially got direct reports, you got managers below them, and you need to understand what's going to, what's going to, motivate them everybody's a little bit different because if you use the same tactic on everybody you're probably not going to be as successful you have to really understand how to communicate some some staff you know they need to be pushed really hard others you can say two words with them and they're that's all you need but you got to give them that encouragement others will run all day without you telling them hardly anything Uh, you know while you have other teams that need some more you know more consistent interaction and direction. And, and I think that's part of, you, you can't make it a blanket statement. That's part of what you need to assess as you're working with staff. And obviously that's one of the first things I had to do at all the parks I've moved to is, you know, understand what, what drives them, you know, what their skills are, where they're where they're strong, play to those strengths, work on things they need to work with and talk to them about it. You know, having the open communication again is, is really important because I've had some very, very good people that have had a few weaknesses and talking about them have, has got them to acknowledge them is it's really easy to not talk about it that's that's something that some leaders miss at times it, sometimes those tough conversations if i found at times where you you go into a conversation you might think it might be difficult but it becomes really easy because that employee is almost waiting to have that conversation they know it's a challenge but you got to bring it up so so while there's you know there's no one way to do it all it's really you got to take a read of your of your staff And what what works for them and what doesn't work for them? Because I guarantee you, you got two people that report to you, each one's probably different. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: Bill, can you share a little more as far as uh, how a leader can really prepare themselves into going into those challenging conversations? Because sometimes for, for the leader, it can feel intimidating and for the staff member, it could feel intimidating. And if, if it's intimidating on both sides, it oftentimes probably won't have the, the most productive output. But uh, like you mentioned, as far as if the staff member is waiting to go into that into that meeting, uh, as far as kind of the, the ways that the leader can best prepare themselves for uh, for a challenging conversation.
0: Yeah, the way I've always approached that is to me, if you identify that one of your staff has an issue, if you do not address that issue, that's a disservice to that employee. So uh, my approach is, you know, I'm, I'm doing this to help you. I'm not doing this to criticize you or get you in trouble. To me, this is for your benefit and the parks or the businesses benefit because you want them to do better. And I've seen many times where, because they're tough conversations, nobody wanted to have them because they weren't easy. But they were highly needed and and that's always been my approach it's while they're tough you don't want to get no one likes to have like most people don't like to have those tough disciplinary types of conversations but at the end of the day it's benefiting everybody to have them because it's like right now if something's going on in my park and i don't know about it i can't do anything about it same thing for one of your one of your you know your reports your one of your staff if they're doing something and you don't know they're coming across a certain way it's a disservice not to tell them. So that's, that's how I kind of approach it. It while it is tough, but it's in everyone's benefit, most specifically for that individual. Now it's up to that individual, individual to hear it. Right. And, and hopefully make the necessary changes, but at least if you don't tell them, you can't expect their performance to change. And, and that's one thing I've seen far too much in a lot of places. Um, and I, I try to make sure I encourage all my staff that, you know, You've got to follow up, you've got to have those conversations because you can't move forward or address something if you don't.
2: Well, and I would imagine that it's laying the groundwork first of listening to them and showing respect and building trust. And then when you have to have the conversation that might not be so pleasant, they're more open to it, or they're they're more bought into it because they already know that you're kind of on their side and you're there to help them.
0: Yeah, that's another thing, you know. And and I'm I'm really, I'm not even a glasses half full. I'm a glasses, I'm a glasses full kind of guy. I'll find the, I got I had a staff get mad at me once because I could always find the positive in something, right? It's real easy to find the negative. And if you have that general belief that that's what the team is doing for you, I think they'll hopefully feel it's tough when you first get to meet them. But as you work with them a while and they know that you're there to help them, if if you build that trust with them, you trust them to do things, they'll trust you. And while they may not like to hear what they're hearing deep down, they are appreciative because they know it is going to make them better and they needed to hear it. Yeah.
1: So, Bill, I'd love to uh, switch gears here for a moment here, but uh, Adventureland has an exciting expansion coming up in 2023. You've worked with uh, uh, Zamperla and you've got the Flying Viking and Dragon Falls that are coming uh, next summer. Would love to talk a little bit about uh, not just as far as what those are and what guests can expect, but as far as uh, the the decision and the conversations and the planning process uh, behind um, implementing those two attractions.
0: A lot of that was kind of in place when we took over. Again, we haven't even been on the property for a year. And, and as you may know, now you buy a ride, you're two or three years down the road, right? So I, I do know that while those things were planned, we did affirm them and, and plan to move forward with them because that does involve not just having the ride and getting it into the park. Where are you gonna put it? What's coming out? Do you move the rides that are in the place? So there's a lot of other decisions of what, what's you know in the immediate area, what's gonna, what's gonna impact. So, we did end up having to remove one of our long, 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 long older rides, uh, Balloon Race. Unfortunately, it was an older ride. Every, all these rides, while they're maybe popular, a lot of guests like them, they do have a lifespan. Once they get to be 20, 30 years old, there's only so many times you can fix parts for them. We have that ride at other parts, we're actually shipping the ride to our other parts, and it's, it's just going right here. Those are the kinds of conversations you have to have. You also want to look at aesthetically, traffic flow you have any revenue opportunities that you can create? are going to, is as we call it, tilting the park. When a new attraction goes in, wherever the guests might have been in the park, that new attraction for the first year, more guests are going to be in that area. So what can you do in that proximity? Take advantage of more people in that area so you might be able to you know, drive your business and, and increase the volume of revenue. So those are the kinds of things you want to look at, be it retail, be it food, whatever it is. Those are all the things that, that come to play thing is, anything that's adjacent to it, especially in our case, this is, like I said, it's got a Viking theme, it's area, so we're expanding out in a couple of the areas around it and maybe trying to add in other theme elements to incorporate that theme further out than just the ride area. So those are the things that, that we're working on. So
2: looking at these new rides that are coming in and how long you've been in the industry, would you also consider yourself an enthusiast or someone who enjoys Going to parks and, and being um, uh, being
0: in the atmosphere of the parks as well. When I started at Notesbury Farm, like I said, back in the back in '89, I was at the park in only a few months, and they put me into a they call it an operations manager program. And I was trained by our manager of security, who was a former chief of police for the city of Bueno Park. And on my training, he told me something I've never forgotten. I shared the same thing with a lot of people. He goes, you know. One of the favorite things I like about working in the, in the park here is if I'm having a bad day, I just go out and walk in the park. Everyone's having a great time. So having that ability to go out and walk in the park, see people, do things that make them have a good time, that's, that's really something you don't see everywhere. And when I took the job at Palace, I went from, for 24 years, working having an office inside a park to going to a corporate office where it's just an office building that was a tough transition for me because you miss it. You know, you like the ability to see, hear the rides and see what's going on and have that enthusiastic, you know, the guests having a good time. So that, I think that's a, that's a big thing for me to be able to experience that as well as just interacting with the team, you know, working, like being around people, like working with them, coaching them, like to have a good time, got to have fun, you know, when you, when you work and that's important. And and so those are the things that are, that, that make a difference for me.
1: So what are you like as a park guest, whether you're visiting your own park or you're traveling or, or kind of walking through the park, what, uh, what are you looking at? What are you thinking about? What are you hearing kind of, is it, is it, are you able to kind of turn it off or are the gears always, always turning?
0: <laughs> if anyone tells you they can turn it off and you go to assist another park, they're probably not being hundred percent truthful because it's really hard to now, whether you actually say something is another thing, right? You know, I remember when I first started at Knott's, it was the first time I'd worked at a company and I was running retail stores. I remember once I started, I couldn't go to another store without looking at fixtures, without looking at displays, looking at those things. Same thing now as, you know, as being running theme parks and, and water parks. I'm going to observe because I'm also looking for ideas. How are they doing this? You know, is there, you know, their <clears throat> directional signage? What are they doing? How wide are their midways? So, and and I... I try to go to parks, bring my family a lot too. And it's hard not to think that because that's what you are. You know, when you do something for over 30 years and you're always looking for ways to improve. And when you go to other properties, those are the kinds of, you're not looking for what they're doing wrong. You might see what you might do differently, right? But you're also looking for ways, hey, that's pretty cool how they did that. How can I incorporate that in my park? So while you can not necessarily make comments about what you're seeing, if you're a park person and you've worked at a park a long time, you go to another park. You're making comments or, or, or around your head, whether you vocalize them or not. Yeah, I had a, a boss who
2: would go to another park, and he'd come back with pictures, literally of ketchup dispensers and trash cans. Uh-huh. That's like the whole. And this is before phones, so he'd actually print those pictures out, and we'd be looking at those and look at what they're doing here, look at what they're doing here. So um, definitely looking for good ideas wherever we can find them. Um, what are some of the things, like when you are going through a park, um, you know, are there things that you're looking for specifically or is it just de- dependent on what you happen to see as you're kind of walking through the park?
0: It depends. I mean, there are times where maybe there is something I'm specifically looking for, but normally when I'm visiting another park, I'm, it's more really just experience the park, maybe a specific ride or two, and just kind of take it all in. You know, there's a lot of parks I've been to that have a lot bigger budgets than ours. There's no way we can do the kind of you know theming and things these other parks do. However, there are certain things you might see that you know what we could probably do that, and and that's pretty much how how, how I'll, I'll experience the parks that way. It's it's not I'm not and there are times sure I'll take pictures. I've done that before. I'll see something I've never seen before. That's pretty cool, and and so that's that's part of the kind of it's almost like the fun of going to the parks to see if you can find something that's really unique. So yeah. What about
1: turning those ideas or, or that inspiration really into action? You, you, know, you you've taken the pictures or the, you know, the ketchup dispensers, like Matt's talking about, or, right. or whatever it is, and said, "Oh, we, you know, we should do that." Uh, really, kind of bring it back to your team, and then uh, I, I would say getting buy-in internally. Or do you usually reach out to kind of use your professional network to reach out to to those at those other parks, or as far as uh, kind of then then just implementing new ideas and, and inspiration that you see at other parks?
0: It kind of depends on what it might be because obviously we've got a lot of planners and designers, and there's there's parts of our staff that's what their job is, and 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 chances are if it's something that's good to do here, it may be good to do across all our parks. So a lot of a lot of times the first thing I'll do is I'll be, go back to our our team that's that's involved with multiple parks and say, hey, I saw this, I thought this is really cool. You know that's something we might want to consider. I'd like to consider it here, and again, you have a depending on what it is, you know simple product acquisition, something small, no big deal. But if it's, it's something more that might have a bigger impact on how we're operating, then I definitely have to get, you know, others from the corporate team involved so they can kind of take a look at it. And, and there are times when, you know, we might take an idea or tweak an idea and say, you know what, we see how it work there, we see how it work these other places, but we kind of want to make it work here this way. So it's a collaborative effort. And you know, because I had been on the corporate team and technically I still and because I didn't mention I still oversee our Sea Life Park in Hawaii. So I still oversee an animal park there in addition to running Adventureland. So having those interactions with the corporate team is, is important. Keeping those relationships good helps my park here. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, Josh mentioned network um, just a minute ago. And, you know, being in the industry, as long as you have, certainly you've got, a, a I would imagine, a pretty vast network. Um, one of the questions that we get a lot from people who are entering the industry is, How do I build my network? How do I get out and network and, and those type of things. So I'm curious what kind of things you've done maybe over the years that has helped you nurture and grow your professional network.
0: There's two answers to that for me. When I, when you're at a park level and you're, you want to be engaged depending on your level, especially if you're in charge of a park or you want to be engaged locally. When, you know, when I was, when I went up to great America Northern California, we, the park is adjacent to the convention center. So I met the GM of the convention center. He said, Hey, you need to go join the rotary club. It happened to be in the hotel right there. So I said, sure. What I didn't realize was every mover and shaker in the city of Santa Clara where the park was, was in that club. I didn't know that. You got the chief of police fire city officials. You got all kinds of people joining that enabled me to quickly identify who or the movers and shakers if I needed something for the park that that was huge you know going to mixers go being being engaged in the community at a park level even when I was at knots I, I was on a local the high school or elementary school school site council just just doing things in the community gives you a chance to get out there and you never know when you're going to engage with somebody how they can help you down the road at From the corporate level, then you're more probably engaged with vendors and things and going to trade shows because you're you're trying to affect efficiencies and identifying products that the park can help. Or if you get into a project and there's a problem, you can go right to the guy that's going to be able to help you and not have to go through several layers of layers of channels. So I, I think that again, that's that's really made a difference. And in both cases, I think some people lose sight of your own team, the relationship you build with your own team, both at a park and you know, in your corporate support centers, which is what we call ours, your corporate office, that's critical because it's, it's when there's a problem, it's always good to be able to go right to the person, pick up the phone, and they're going to help you because you've built a good relationship with them. A lot of people might not see that as, as well as they might. And that, that does make a difference because there's, there's been many times I'd have Park call me, hey, I've been trying to get a hold of so and so. It was funny. They I would literally take my phone and walk down to the person that was sitting in the office and we t- we kicked care of a problem in a few minutes. So I, I think that's that's really good. The other, the other comment I want to make, and this is, you know, I'm I'm I've been around probably too long in some respects, but many times everyone's using digital phone, excuse me, email, text to, to do work. I've lost count of how many times I have first question, did you speak with that person? Right. And it's not Really, a big thing now, but it is amazing how quickly you can address a problem with a simple phone call than having emails or texts go back and forth. And I encourage my staff to do that all the time. So,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I have a question for you. We're starting to starting to run a little low on time. Still have a few minutes left here, and I' I'm curious as far as. Uh, lessons or whether it's you know leadership lessons that, that you've learned along the way, but particularly going back, you were telling us how, how you started, uh, you were selling merchandise at, at the arena in Los Angeles. And, and curious as far as lessons that you learned from that job early in your career that have really stayed with you all the way through your journey and, to, and through to today.
0: When I started that job, I knew right away that I'd probably never work for a more difficult manager. <laughs> And that was a, a lesson that I, because this, this particular manager who is no longer with us, but in any event, was really diff, really tough on all the staff to the point of, you know, in, in not the right way. And I told myself I would never be like that. So I've, I've always respected everybody I work with because basically I expect, I don't expect any different treatment that I give somebody else. And, and that's, that's something that has stuck with me for a long, long time. And it's really helped me. I think. I think most people that I work with are really do enjoy working with me, and and I think that's that's been something that, I've never lost on me, and that's it's it's worked everywhere I've everywhere I've been.
2: Yeah. So, Bill, kind of a maybe a um, uh, follow up to that is when you think about what you get to do now, you know, based on you know being the manager that you want to be and um, leading these teams. What's the What's the best part of your
0: job? A couple of different things, but I really I like people. I like coaching people. I like seeing those that I've worked with do well. You know, it's almost like your own children. You know, you 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 lead them, you give them ideas, but you got to let them do their thing, right? And once you see them succeed, you may or may not have any specific part of what they did but just so long as you're you know you were helpful them in, in probably in some way i think that's that's what i really enjoy i also love engaging with just the customers you know talking to guests uh and because you never know what you're gonna who you're gonna talk to and how they're going to be and going back even earlier different parts of the country have different <laughs> the guests react differently you know so that that's interesting but you know i i enjoy you know being part of the team because that's part of my job, I tell all my staff, my job is to give you the tools and resources to help guide you to do your job the best. Makes my job easier, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that's that's what's always worked, worked well for me.
1: Excellent. Uh, Bill, this has been uh, just such a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, as we start to wind this down here, if people want to learn more about Adventureland or if they want to get a hold of you directly, where would you send them?
0: Well, like just our website, anything about the park, you know, adventureland.com, we, we can, on the website, there's there's all kinds of contacts. Um, my, They're welcome to email me, and if they got my name, it's bill.lentz at palaceentertainment.com. They can contact me directly through that. And i try, one of the other things I try to do is respond quickly. I can't promise it happens all the time, but it depends on what's going on, but, and, and that's something, even with guest concerns, I've been many times, I remember getting an email and if you call a person within minutes of the email, that number one, they're shocked that you even get back that fast. And it's amazing how quickly it dissipates the issues they have. So, you know, that's that's another thing that, that really helps. But yeah, that's that's the way to get information about our park or, or if you want to get a hold of me.
2: Well, Bill, I can vouch for the quickness of your reply as we sent out these questions. And like a few minutes later, you said, these look good. So um, I do appreciate that as well. So um, as Josh said, this has been a fascinating conversation. Loved hearing all about your history and your philosophies. Um, And for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast.
1: Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave
2: us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.